Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, conservative silence on what should be the hill to die on, free speech, and why celebrating Canada Day is now a subversive act. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. It is my great pleasure to have you aboard. Listen, we are going to be talking about, as I promised last week, C-36 a great deal. This is probably one of the worst, I would actually say it is the worst bill that the Justin Trudeau government has put forward because it goes after what I believe wholeheartedly is the mother of all freedoms, freedom of speech. This is the online hate bill that would restore Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act that would essentially outlaw communicating what the government says is hate speech online, if that goes against one of the designated protected groups under the Canadian Human Rights Act. And it also has criminal provisions as well, like the imposition of a peace bond on people who are likely to commit an offense in the eyes of a provincial court judge. I'm going to talk about that later on in the show, but I want to talk about the political stakes of this right now, because it has been six days Six days, and believe me when I say I've been counting, since the Liberal government tabled this. It was on the final day of the parliamentary session, which, as I said last week, is evidence of something very concerning, which is that the Liberals, if all of the election rumors that an election is coming this summer are true, believe they can win an election on this. Because by tabling a bill when Parliament's rising, you don't even have time to do second reading, committee, third reading, to send it to the Senate. You're really just doing it because you want to have it on the record. So when the Liberals do that, they're saying that if there's a summer election, they believe they can hold this bill up, look to Canadians and say, vote for us so we can finish the job we started. As opposed to burying it at the beginning so everyone's forgotten about it, the Liberals think that banning online speech is a winnable proposition. And if the last six days is any indication, they may be right. The Conservative Party of Canada has been effectively silent since this bill was put forward. I say effectively because there was one statement from one member of Parliament. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has said in the time since this was tabled, not a single word in public, so far as I can tell, about C-36. I pointed this out in a column when it was five days past, and I said, listen, five days since this was tabled, Aaron O'Toole has said nothing. What's the issue? And the point that I raised is that this is the hill to die on. A conservative party that does not stand up for free speech is not a particularly conservative party. It's one thing to say, yeah, we want to lower your taxes a bit, but if you're not standing up for free speech, if you're not there on the issues that matter, who really cares? So Aaron O'Toole and his caucus will probably vote against this if and when it comes to it. The issue is that they should be shouting from the rooftops that this bill is bad because it is a bill that supports censorship. Especially after the last couple of months has seen the Liberals try to impose Bill C-10, which does sweeping regulations to bring the internet and internet content providers under the purview of government regulation. And the Conservatives have been very solid on C-10. 
They've been talking about how C10 will allow the government to control the internet and censor content. So you may wonder why is it they are not prepared to do the same for C36? There are a few theories that I have. One is confusion. They know that most Canadians don't know the difference between a C10 and a C36 and a Section 13, so they don't want to start muddling it by talking about another bill. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that the Conservatives are scared. And I suspect this is the case, and let me tell you why. It is safe to stand up and attack C10. It's very safe. C10 doesn't deal with anything polarizing. It is a bill that talks about the Canadian Radio Television Telecommunications Commission. It is a bill that is as dry as it gets with significant implications. But the subject matter of the bill is completely banal. So when the Conservatives talk about free speech in the abstract... It's very safe. There's no political pushback. They can just say, oh yeah, they're trying to regulate what you post online. The government says no, and that's that. C36 is different because C36 goes after a very specific type of speech. What the government says is hate speech. And most Canadians would say, oh, I like free speech, but oh, I don't like hate speech. Hate's mean. We're not hateful people. I don't want hateful content. And I would agree, I don't like hateful content. I don't like people smearing others based on their race, religion, sexual orientation. I don't like, in a civil society, people being hateful, people being rude. The issue is I also don't like government being the arbiter of what people can say. When we have a civil society to mete out responses and remedies to unkind and uncivil things. That's the whole point of a community and a society. So my issue here is that the government is redefining speech it does not like, unapproved speech as hate speech, so as to justify the censorship of it. This means, however, that if the conservatives stand up against this, if the conservatives say, no, 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 we support free speech, they will have to defend demonstrably unpopular speech. And this is the issue, is that when you're defending free speech in the abstract, it's easy. When you're defending it in very specific circumstances, it's incredibly difficult. I'll give you an example from my own life. I was talking a few years ago on my former radio show about Holocaust denial, which is probably one of the easiest examples to use when you're talking about free speech. And I said Holocaust denial is egregious. I have talked to survivors of the Holocaust. I have been to the Holocaust Museum. I am very much pro-commemoration and remembrance of the Holocaust. I do not believe Holocaust denial should be censored. And I had said in a, a discussion at one point, I said, yeah, if, if some you know university uh, student group wants to debate uh, whether the Holocaust happened, they should be allowed to do it. And it was interesting. That got picked up by some left-wing smear hatchet machine as Andrew Lawton thinks the Holocaust is debatable, as Andrew Lawton thinks the Holocaust should be debated. When I said, no, the belief in free speech does not mean the endorsement of individual or particular expressions of speech. And it, this used to be something that people could take for granted. No longer is that the case. So when Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives say, we support free speech, the Liberals are going to say, oh, that means you support this claim of this group being like this, or this claim of contempt for that group, or, or whatever the case may be. And you may say, okay, well, you're proving the point. That's why the conservatives are, are not wanting to do it. Well, let me take a step back further and say, I don't care. When you decide that something is the hill to die on, it means you have to stand up there and take the slings and arrows that come from speaking out on that issue. Because there are some issues that nothing really matters without them. 
And free speech is very much one of those. So the conservatives need to be shouting from the rooftops that C-36 is bad, especially conservative members of parliament who were there from 2011 to 2015, those four years of Stephen Harper's majority, in which Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act was repealed, thanks to a private member's bill by Brian Storseth. Any MP who was there in 2012 when that was passed, the repeal went into force in 2013, anyone who was there should be loudly speaking up against it. So why has there been no response? I want to read, if I can here, a statement that was sent out by the justice critic for the Conservatives, Rob Moore. And when I say statement, this was not proactively sent out. This was not issued in the same way that the Conservatives put out statements on things they want to draw attention to, like the Wee scandal or vaccine procurement. No, this was something that a media outlet asked for and they provided. Rob Moore said this, Once again, we see all Canadians can expect from the Trudeau Liberals are photo ops and announcements. The fact this bill was brought forward in the last minutes before Parliament ends for the summer shows this Liberal government is only interested in political posturing ahead of the next election, not rooting out hate speech. Conservatives condemn all hate speech and speech that incites violence, but this bill will not target hate speech, just ensure bureaucrats in Ottawa are bogged down with frivolous complaints about tweets. The minister responsible for the first censorship bill and the Trudeau liberals are empowering a bureaucracy to subjectively restrict the rights of Canadians. Well, he has a couple of things there. He implies that it's a censorship bill. He doesn't talk at all about free speech in this statement, not a single reference to free speech. And a couple of the issues that he brings up are a bit weird. You're concerned about the bureaucrats' workload, about bureaucrats being bogged down with tweets. In fact, I think if bureaucrats are being bogged down with some things and they're not doing other things, that seems like it might be a win-win. It also talks about political policy and that it might not go far enough, that it's not actually going to go after hate speech. So the issue is completely missed here. This is not a bad bill because it's ineffective. It's not a bad bill because it's going to uh, be taxing on bureaucrats. It's a bad bill because the design of it and the function of it will be of censorship. That is the focus, the goal, and the effect of the bill. In constitutional law, they call it the pith and substance. The pith and substance of this bill is a bill that limits free speech beyond the existing criminal threshold of speech. And I've seen a few people defend this by saying that, well, you know what, it's, it, currently the government doesn't have the means to tackle online speech. Bruce Party says it best. Anything that is illegal offline is illegal online. So you don't need a new law if it's an enforcement issue. You need a new mechanism of enforcement. That's not what they're going after here. They are going after very directly a limiting of the bounds of discourse. You do not need speech protections for speech that everyone agrees with. You need speech protections for speech that you revile. So if you read through C-36, you can see that the government is trying to legislate an emotion. And yes, they are trying to legislate against thought crimes, both through the Canadian Human Rights Commission and also through the criminal code, as we'll talk about in a few moments' time with Ezra Levant, who knows full well the power of human rights commissions and this human rights regime that is underscoring the so-called prosecutions of hate speech. So we have a government that wants to prosecute Canadians for thought crimes. We have a process that will very much be weaponized by critics. I have no doubt 
that there will be groups and activists that just nonstop file complaints against people they don't like, against bloggers, podcasters, against Twitter accounts. They will just do this nonstop because this was already happening to some extent when Section 13 was around for the first time. So all of this is to say that this needs to be the bill that every politician stands up and speaks out on. The fact that none are in a substantive way is very concerning for Canada and very concerning for any Canadians who value free speech, a group that I fear is dwindling in number. And I did mention this when I I talked about this on Thursday's show last week, that some people might not have been around or aware of the fight that was taking place on this about a decade ago. And it was actually more than that. It was beyond that when this really started. You had this whole regime. And and by the way, it wasn't just the Canadian Human Rights Commission. It was other provinces' commissions as well that were having this moment in the early 2000s. And they eventually poked the wrong bears by going after people like Mark Stein and Ezra Levant and, and a lot of others. And I want to just show you what happens in these sorts of prosecutions. Before I introduce my next guest, I want you to take a look at this video clip from one of these very star chambers. Well, and I always, in an investigation interview, I always ask people, even though they've been as thorough as as you have, in in summary fashion, what was your uh, intent and purpose of your article with the cartoon illustrations published on February 27, 2006? Why is that a relevant question? Uh, under Section 3.1a, it talks about intention, purpose. We like to get some background as well. Is it, is it you'd like to get some background, or does this determine anything? If uh, we publish what we publish, the words in the picture speak for themselves. Are you saying that one answer is wrong and one answer is right? Will, no. if, will, will a certain answer, is a certain answer contrary to law? No. So if I were to say, hypothetically, that the purpose was to uh, instill hatred, incite hatred, and uh, cause offense, are you saying that's an acceptable answer? I have to look at it in the context of all the information and determine if it was indeed. I, I think you're playing silly butter here. I think you know that, that the answer here, uh, that that answer would be illegal anything is possible I guess but again I look at it this kind of section 3 case takes a lot of analysis so there's a lot of things I have to look at that piece of information is just one my answer to your question is as follows we published those cartoons for the intention and purpose of exercising our inalienable rights as free-born Albertans to publish whatever the hell we want, no matter what the hell you think. That was, of course, our friend Ezra Levant being grilled by an investigator with the Alberta Human Rights Commission, Shirlene McGovern, as to what his intent was in choosing to publish at the time in the Western Standard the infamous Danish Muhammad cartoons, because this is exactly what human rights regulations and regimes do when they start tackling free speech, delving into your thinking behind doing certain things, which all should be protected under free speech. Fast forward to 13 years, we have Ezra Levant, rebel commander himself and great friend of this show with us. Ezra, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm afraid the law 
under which I was prosecuted over a dozen years ago, it's coming back through the liberal Bill C-36, and actually it's coming back sort of weaponized. You know those killer bees, and then there's Africanized killer bees that are even tougher, apparently. This isn't just like Section 13 I was grilled under. This is like a killer bee version of that that is much worse, and I'm happy to tell you why. Yeah, and I want to talk first off because a lot of people have looked at this and said, okay, well, you know, Mark Stein and McLean's were prosecuted under the BC Human Rights Tribunal. You were taken to task by Alberta, and this is, of course, the Canadian Human Rights Commission that will have these new powers. But my position on this has always been that, first off, the provinces tend to follow the lead of the federal government, but also they're all part of this one major regime, which is a regime that decides the speech uh, that is uttered by individual people, by media platforms, now by bloggers and people on social media. It's all part of the same overarching discourse. Yeah. Well, um, I'm afraid that the pendulum is swinging against free speech. I think the the pendulum swung towards free speech because of the overreach by the Alberta Human Rights Commission in the video you showed there and their attack on Mark Stein. But that was more than, that was about a decade ago. And since that time, cancel culture, woke racial identity politics have become mainstream. They've leaped out of the fringes of academia into the courts and certainly into politics. And so it's coming back and it will be used vigorously. And they've added some accelerant to it. Let me give you two examples. That video you just showed I was filming, that was actually at my law firm's uh, office. Um, We we had the right to film that interrogation to talk about the accuser against me, who was a radical imam born in Pakistan, came to Canada, didn't accept our ideas of the separation of mosque and state, et cetera. That would be impossible under the new rule. Because under Bill C-36, the Human Rights Commission has the right to ban anyone from knowing who the accuser is, who the complainant is. So not only would I not be able to know, but no one else in the media, in the public would be able to know. We have secret complainants and now secret witnesses. Those are explicitly lined, uh, lined uh, outlined in Bill C-36. So it's not just the same censorship as before. It's the same censorship, but they want to ensure that no one will ever be able to fight back. You'll never know who's coming for you, whether it's, oh, I don't know, a disgruntled ex-employee, a disgruntled ex-wife or ex-husband or ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, a rival, or I think the most likely scenario in Canada, one of the liberal government's paid aggressor groups like the laughably named Canadian Anti-Hate Network. They just got a quarter million dollar grant from Stephen Gilbo to go out and hunt and complain against conservative opponents of Justin Trudeau. They, they literally got a quarter million dollar budget to hunt down Trudeau's enemies online and complain against them. 
well, who do you think is going to be the number one customer of this hate speech provision? Well, but we'll this, never this, know. This is tremendously important, though, because because this body, the Canadian Human Rights Commission, is not like a crown attorney. It's not supposed to have an independent prosecution arm. But when Section 13 was around the first time, almost all of the complaints were filed by one single person. And we just know that there will be activists whose full-time job is finding this Twitter account they don't like, this episode of your show, of my show, and, and just filing it in a systematic way, these complaints. Well, yeah, and I, I forgot to mention, not only can the complainants be a group or a corporation that's kept secret, and not only can they give evidence in secret, and by the way, we don't do that for any other kind of law. You can be prosecuting the mafia, and you still have to take a stand, say your name, because we have to know, well, who's the, is it a grudge from a rival mob boss? Yeah, I think I learned is that in grade 11, that the right to face your accuser is one of the cornerstones of the rule of law in Canada. Yeah, otherwise, how do you know what the angle is? How do you know what the grudge is? So not only are you allowed to be a secret complainant and give secret evidence, but you get 20,000 bucks a pop every time you catch someone. And uh, under C-36, not only do you get up to 20 grand, but the person who made the offensive Facebook post has to also pay uh, the government 50 grand. So, so I missed this. You're then, saying you can actually claim a bounty if you haul someone before the commission and win. Yeah, it's right there in the legislation, up to $20,000 per case. So that's a really profitable business. And I think that's tax-free. You go to the Human Rights Commission in secret. You don't have to hire a lawyer. They do it for you. The, the bad guy is put on trial. You can give secret evidence. Obviously, you're not going to be cross-examined on it in any meaningful way if you're secret. And if you win, you get 20000 bucks. Well, why wouldn't people make a living out of this? This is creating a whole new industry. But I have to tell you, Andrew, what we've been talking about isn't even the worst part of the bill. It's terrible, but it is nowhere near the worst part of the bill. This bill, C-36, does bring back the censorship provision. It does reintroduce the counterfeit right not to be offended. It has all of that in there. The pre-crime, like you, you, you publish something likely to cause hurt feelings. All that's back, and the new secrecy provision's in there, and the $20,000 bounty is in there. Check for yourself. It's all in the, in the bill. That's not the worst part, Andrew. The worst part is they also, in the same bill, make changes to the criminal code, changes I have never seen or heard of anywhere in the free world, and I, I can explain them to you in two minutes. The criminal code, so I'm not talking about some kangaroo court human rights commission. The criminal code is being amended in the same bill to allow anyone in Canada to go to a provincial court and apply for what they call a recognizance. It's like bail. Apply to get their enemy, their political rival, to have a bunch of conditions put on their life. It's like a restraining order but it only applies for bias crimes and hate crimes. You can't get this restraining order if someone is a robber or a murderer or a rapist or any of those things. It's a special criminal code provision only for bias crimes, but get this. You can get it for someone who hasn't done anything yet. They yeah, this is the yet. minority report peace bond for a crime exactly. that someone may f commit in the future. 
In fact, the title of this is Fear of a Hate Crime. So you go to court and say, Your Honor, he hasn't done anything. He's not accused. He's not charged. He's not convicted. He's not tried. He's not sentenced. He's not a criminal, Your Honor. But this new section of the criminal code says, If I'm afraid of him, only for hate, that human emotion. Not for, he's going to kill me, he's going to rape me, he's going to stab me, he's going to rob me. No, no. I'm afraid that he's a hater. You can get a judge to give you a list of things that would shock you, Andrew. Let me tell you some of them. You can get someone put under house arrest. You can limit the places they go if they're allowed out for certain hours of the day. Any, you can ban them from any place, whether it's their work, school, business, uh, family, you can ban them from communicating directly or indirectly with any person. Again, family, friends, political party, associates, employees. You can get any firearms they own legally seized. You can ban them, this is crazy, from drinking wine, beer, or any other alcohol. And what? subject them to testing of that, it looked like. Oh, yeah. Well, And they have to take a blood, urine, or DNA test on command. Um, the, the no communication part is insane. The no meeting people, no going places is insane. Uh, oh, and a, an electronic ankle monitor, like, a, like, like you would put on a, a sexual predator or something. You can't go to court, Andrew, and say, I'm afraid of that sexual predator, put an ankle monitor on him. Because the courts would say, that's a pre-crime, he hasn't done it yet. When he's done something, we'll arrest him. You, you can't say, that man, I think he's going to kill me. The judge would say, he hasn't done it yet. We'll stop him if he moves on you. But, but only for these new hate crimes under C-36. Hate's a human emotion, by the way. You can go to court and get a preemptive strike against your political enemies for all these things we lined out, ankle monitor, no alcohol, blood, urine, and DNA testing, no firearms, no uh, leaving the house during certain hours, no going to certain places, no communicating directly or indirectly with certain people. I've never heard of that before. That's a pre-crime like Minority Report. And I've never heard of anything so illiberal if that law becomes, if that bill becomes law, I truly think we will live in an, I'm not going to say an unfree country, but I'll say just a partially free country if that becomes law. And just while we're talking about the peace bond here, I, I want to read if I can. This is uh, under the bill, uh, section 810.012, subsection 5. If you refuse to enter into this recognizance, you can be put in jail by the provincial judge for 12 months. Yeah. So if so, the judge says, yes, we think that uh, person X is right to fear you may commit one of these new hate offenses, and you say, I'm not playing ball, you can be put in jail for that alone for 12 months. And you, you right. are right. I mean, I talked to Christine Van Gyne of the Canadian Constitution Foundation about this last week, and she said peace bonds are already subjected to a lot of criticism from civil libertarians because of the nature of them going for future crimes, crimes that you've not been charged or convicted of, and to ex apply that to something that involves a level of thinking, a, a thought crime, is absolutely egregious. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was an articling student way back in the day, one of the very first things I did was to serve a restraining order on a bad guy to keep away from his ex. 
And I remember drafting that, and it was a very powerful legal tool, and I served him on him. He was actually in jail. I went into the maximum security jail to serve him with this restraining order, which just sounds weird, but he was going to get out, and his ex was afraid. Even in that restraining order against a convicted criminal, he still had rights. At the bottom of the restraining order, it basically said, if you disagree with this, come back to court and say why, and it might be modified. But the, the bar was high to get that. And to have a political restraining order, if you are afraid someone has the human emotion of hate, not that they're going to hurt you. Let me just be crystal clear. Another thing Bill C-36 does is it defines hate as an emotion, which is true. So you're criminalizing an emotion and criminalizing it because if, if someone's afraid you're going to have an emotion and can commit an emotion crime, they can go to a court. Now, I, I should note that the attorney general has to sign off on that. But these days, what attorney general wouldn't? So... Well, yeah, and by the way, just on an aside, we know what happens when attorney generals defy, or attorneys general, rather, defy the political will of the governments they serve. Just ask Jody Wells and Raybould. So there is no protection about this process not becoming politicized on both the Human Rights Act complaints and also this peace bond power. Yeah, and it's terrifying. And I have to tell you, I was thinking about myself when I read this, and I, not out of vanity, I just thought, who, who do they have in mind? Who in this country would they try and shut down, say you can't talk to your employees, you can't talk to the public, you can't go places? You, like, I think that they have clearly in mind, I mean, they've come for me before, you just showed a clip of it. Of course they're going to talk about Rebel News. I think they might come from for TNC.News also. I think they might even go for Maxime Bernier. They've already arrested him for going to a peaceful political protest in Manitoba. I think this is absolutely 100% about political, shrinking the bandwidth of political dissent in this country. It's got nothing to do with real crime. Let me give you this example, Andrew. In the last week, five Catholic churches have been burnt by arson. That's a real crime, destruction of property, destruction of the religious center of so many of these communities, not even a statement from Justin Trudeau. You've got a crime wave. You might even call it a terrorist crime wave. It's certainly a hate crime wave. Real life, not a peep from Trudeau. And frankly, Aaron O'Toole is being pretty quiet too. Well, and but I've they, talked earlier on about Aaron O'Toole's silence on C-36. Let me just ask you, before we wrap things up here, Ezra, you literally wrote the book uh, more than a, a decade ago about this. It was a great book, Shakedown, How Our Government is Undermining Democracy in the Name of Human Rights. In 2013, you saw the repeal of Section 13, and this was a, a victory for people who like free speech. Did you envision it coming back at that point? Did you think that it was going to be a short-lived victory? Well, I was worried because when that bill passed to repeal, repeal the censorship provision, only a single non-conservative MP voted for it. Scott Sims, the liberal who's still an MP. The Bloc, all the other liberals, the NDP voted for censorship. So I knew that it was time limited because those parties don't believe in freedom of speech anymore. And we see that now. My worry is that the conservatives don't believe in free speech either. I'm worried that our judges don't believe in free speech either. I'm worried that our civil liberties NGOs 
don't believe in free speech, at least for certain people. And we've seen that through the lockdown and the shrinking of our civil liberties over the last year and a half. I am worried not just that the liberals mean it, but that most of society does too. And it's a shame because, uh, and the media, by the way, when I was charged with hate speech a decade ago, 90% of the media, including most of the CBC, were supportive of me. These days, they would be cheering a prosecution. So I hate to say it, but the cultural leadership of Canada, the political leadership, the legal leadership, the academic leadership, it's completely for cancel culture. This bill, Bill C-36, is the legislation of cancel culture. And the only people against it are the people. I don't know if that's enough. All the establishment is for it. I know ordinary Canadians are against it, or at least I hope so. Maybe they've been infected with wokeism too, Andrew. I wish I could have brought you on to be the bringer of better news. But you know what? People need to understand how bad things are to understand the stakes in fighting back. Ezra Levant, Rebel Commander. And even though it's 12 years old, I have to promote that book again. Author of Shakedown, How Our Government is Undermining Democracy in the Name of Human Rights. Buy it before it is banned. Ezra, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. We've got to take a quick break here when we come back. More of The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. This week is Canada Day, as your calendars call it, or Dominion Day, as I still call it, or National Hate the Country Day, as the mainstream media is, I believe, gearing up to call it. I will say that there's no better way to get Dominion Day people like myself on board with Canada Day than to try to cancel Canada Day, which forces us all to go into just contrarian mode and start screaming Happy Canada Day from the rooftops just because everyone's saying you are not supposed to do it. I, I will say that for years, uh, the political right was trying to fight the war on Christmas. And you, you would see occasionally those buttons people wear. It's okay to wish me a Merry Christmas and all that. I never thought that Canada Day would be the next holiday to get canceled. I thought Easter probably stood a good shot. I knew Christmas was, I mean, that one just for sure. But I didn't think Canada Day was going to be the one to go to the top, but it is. Discoveries of unmarked graves that have been alleged by native bands in British Columbia and Saskatchewan and likely elsewhere have caused this reckoning with Canada's past treatment of Indigenous peoples, a reckoning that has invigorated what a lot of people are taking to be a visceral loathing of this country. And I should say, by the way, in a lot of cases, this is not coming from Indigenous peoples. Ellis Ross, who's a BC politician and Indigenous MLA, has said that you need to build, you don't need to destroy. And he did a great interview on CBC's Cross Country Checkup in which he talked about this. I learned a long time ago, instead of giving into my anger and my, my thoughts of revenge, it, it's, it's better to build. Anybody can tear down. Anybody can rip something apart. It's easy. It's easy to say no. It's much tougher to build something. And I've got the scars to prove it. And being the bad guy to stand up and say, no, Canada is not what it was, the same thing it was 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Yes, there are some things that uh, we have to resolve. For, for my part, I think what, what's really uh, unresolved, especially in terms of residential school, it's an open wound. And I, I, I've got some ideas behind that and, and how to help 
heal that wound, but uh, not with all this rhetoric going around, not with... I mean, I, I, I don't really support anything that causes divisiveness. There was something very poetic in that. And this is a man whose parents went to residential schools, his friends, he said, went to residential schools. And he says that anyone can tear down, anyone can rip something apart. It's tougher to build something. And he is saying that as a country, we need to build. And, and that's a part of healing, not simply destroying. It's one thing to add to Canada Day. Say, you know what, on this country's celebratory birthday, we have to take a look at our past and we have to understand it better. And, you know, I look at my own education. I did not learn all that much about Indigenous people's history. I would have loved to have learned more. It's a part of this country. But when you celebrate your country, you are celebrating it warts and all. You're not whitewashing it, but you're saying that there's something there to celebrate. And Canada is, as a country, built upon its history, built upon tradition. We cannot destroy that without trying to destroy the very foundation and the very underpinning of this country, which is what a lot of the activists want. And it, remember, it wasn't that long ago that when you were to stand up for a statue, whether it's Sir John A. Macdonald, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, uh, Egerton Ryerson, they would say, and you, you would say, well, you're, you're trying to erase history. The activists would say, oh, no, you're just taking down a statue. You're not taking away history. It's, it's not going to go beyond that. And everyone said it was not a brilliant observation, but everyone said, well, it, they're not going to stop at statues. And this is exactly where we are. They aren't just stopping at statues. Now they're going on to Canada Day itself. And there are two questions that come to mind of that. Number one, look around the world. What country do you like? Name a country that you think is worth celebrating. I bet that if you were to have a look around you're not going to find a country that's better than Canada on all of these different grounds. This, this is a country that literally has enshrined in its existence multiculturalism, which we can debate the implications of. But if you want a country that's pluralistic and inclusive, you're not going to find a better example than Canada. So a lot of these activists could not point to a country that they particularly like, which speaks to MLA Ellis Ross's belief that they're only interested in destroying. They're only interested in tearing down. And yes, there are indigenous communities around the world that are behind this, but by and large, it seems to be non-indigenous activist leftist voices that are pushing this anti-Canada narrative, that are pushing this loathing, this visceral loathing, as I called it, of Canada. Not exclusively, and, and I actually want to talk about this piece in Chatelaine, which I admit is not on my regular reading list, but there was a, a Chatelaine article that crossed my uh, my desk that I, not a physical copy, it was online, that I wanted to, to read from, because there was something about this that, that I actually found very, I'm, I'm not a, a particularly angry person, but, but very frustrating. The article is called, As a Muslim, I Face Islamophobia. As an immigrant, I've failed Indigenous people. It's written in Chatelaine by journalist Fatima Syed. She is an immigrant to Canada from Pakistan, and she writes of this experience of coming here. She says, When my family moved to Canada from Pakistan, we weren't told that this was a land built on genocide and erasure. No one would want to move to such a country. Instead, we believed that Canada was an economic opportunity. We believed it was the greatest multicultural country in the world. We believed it was a safe country. 
It didn't take me long after we immigrated to Canada to realize that none of that is true. It took me much longer to realize that immigrants are also part of the problem. We are guilty of indigenous displacement. I think many of us are just starting to realize it, and very slowly. No one would want to move to such a country, a land built on genocide and erasure. So this speaks, I think, to the point I just made. No one would move to Pakistan and then start saying, oh, you know, I don't like the way Imran Khan is doing things here. I, this is a, no, 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 they don't respect religious freedom. Uh, you'd find yourself very quickly uh, thrust out of Pakistan or worse if you were to do that. Now, I'm not a relativist. I believe that things have a value in and of themselves. So Canada being better than other places does not mean that Canada is necessarily great on its own. However, Canada is a great country. And Canada does have all of these tremendously positive things to celebrate, which makes me wonder why someone who has received an opportunity in Canada that they and their family did not think they were getting in their home country thinks it's appropriate to crap all over that very country that's given them that. And I've got very little tolerance for Canada hating from people that chose Canada for a reason. And in a certain way, if you were born in Canada, you've lived your whole life here, this is just where you are. Okay, the, the idea of just uh, fleeing somewhere else when you don't necessarily have a place to go if you don't like your country is a little bit difficult. But, but anyone who chose to live here, what is it about Canada that keeps you here then? And, and I don't think that Fatima Syed's position is representative of the immigrant experience from my experiences anyway. Sorry to use the word experience now thrice in a sentence. Rupa Subramanya in the National Post had a, a great piece about this. She said, to those who choose to come here, canceling Canada Day seems utterly bizarre. She says the idea of Canada is worth celebrating. She points to the polling that says most Canadians agree and says it's a small number of far-left activists who are calling for cancellation for a, of a nation they don't really believe in. And she nails it here. She absolutely nails it. She says they believe that Canada as a nation state is fundamentally evil, a white colonial settler society that is illegitimate and immoral. Their extreme views must not be allowed to shape a legitimate national debate on how Canada can better itself. And that, that is perfect. And I would say to extend that thought, a lot of them, I think, object to all nation states. They object to the existence of a nation state because they don't have a country in which the indigenous people have had a relationship with a national government, a settler government, as they call it, that they would model Canada after. All of them have de dealt with this, Australia, New Zealand, United States. And, and it's not to say there have not been positive inroads made. But this is a dynamic that no one can point to a country that seems to have nailed it. And that's very important. So do we dwell in the past? Or do we accept the past, acknowledge the past, learn from the past, and move forward? A process which is part of why you celebrate a country that is capable of that introspection. And that's what Canada is. So no, celebrating Canada is not this chest-thumping, jingoistic uh exercise that's devoid of understanding history. Quite the contrary, it's accepting the role that history has played in bringing us to where we are and striving to continue to make the country better and better. That is the idea of Canada. When you're celebrating Canada Day, you are not celebrating every single decision that Canada has made. You are celebrating a longer narrative that is still on its way forward. 
And a lot of these people, I think, would want a regime change. When they want to topple the statues of John A. Macdonald, they, they want to do what they, they want to do what Iraqi rebels did in 2003 with the statue of Saddam Hussein, not just to take down the statue, but to just topple the regime and replace it with a new one. Except they don't have anything new. They're not in the building game. As Ellis Ross said, they do not know what it is they want to create. They only know what it is they despise. And celebrating Canada Day, I didn't think would be a subversive act, but here we are in 2021, and it is. And I know I, I criticized conservative leader Aaron O'Toole earlier for not taking a stand on C-36. I will say the conservatives have been very good on Canada Day. A low-hanging fruit. Again, I, I didn't think that that would have to be political boldness to stand up for Canada Day, but here we are. And just this morning, Aaron O'Toole had a very thoughtful answer on this. When you cancel an event that celebrates our country, you lose the opportunity to not only celebrate the great aspects of our country and the opportunity to challenge the citizens of your community, of your province, or, or, the, or the country in general to do better in the future. I think, as I said last week, our country is not perfect, but I'm inspired by our commitment to do better, our commitment to reconciliation. In one of my communities on Canada Day, we had a First Nations chief who would speak about reconciliation. If events don't take place, you can't celebrate and you cannot rededicate your efforts for this country. It's time to build our country up, to to address reconciliation, to address inequalities, not by canceling celebrations or, or tearing Canada down, but recommitting to the, to the principles at the core of this country. So despite whatever frustrations I have with various governmental policies like, you know, Bill C-36 or C-10, as a country, we are bigger than the government of the day. As a country, we are bigger than our history, but we build on our history. And I will never be ashamed of being proud and no one else should be either. We've got to end things here. My thanks to you all for tuning in to The Andrew Lawton Show today. If I don't see you before, then happy Dominion Day. God bless you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.